Welcome, everyone, to episode 78 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We are so glad you have joined us. We're recording this episode on December 1st, about three weeks after the 2020 presidential election. If you followed this election closely, every now and then during the heated campaign, and even in the weeks following it, you heard now President Joe Biden refer to the United States as a city on a hill. Biden is not the first president to use this phrase to describe America. And I'm guessing he will not be the last. But what if I told you that the idea of America as a city on a hill is a relatively new concept in the United States? Or what if I told you that presidents and politicians and pundits did not start using this phrase with any degree of frequency until after World War II. The phrase city on a hill is a reference, of course, to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. But when Americans refer to it, they are also remembering John Winthrop's use of the term in a 1630 sermon titled, A Model of Christian Charity. Winthrop was the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, not to be confused with the Plymouth Colony, which was established 10 years earlier. And Winthrop used the phrase city upon a hill in a lay sermon that he delivered on the Arbella. This was the ship that brought an early group of English Puritans to America to establish a colony of their own, which again would become known as the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Now, those of you who have listened to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast may recall episode 45. In that episode, we talked with Princeton University historian Daniel Rogers about the idea of America as a city on a hill. I encourage you to listen to that episode in tandem with today's conversation. Our guest is Washington University literary scholar Abram Van Engen. He is the author of a brand new book titled City on a Hill, A History of American Exceptionalism, published in 2020 with Yale. Van Engen asked some interesting questions about Winthrop's famous sermon. For example, what did this sermon mean in the context in which it was written? Or when did one phrase of this sermon, the city on a hill, become part of the vernacular of American exceptionalism? These are all fascinating questions, and Van Engen handles them very, very well in his book and will hopefully help us sort all of this out. He'll be with us momentarily. But first, we need to take care of some business. As you may know, the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. The podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Ralph Stone, David Plummer, Richard Green, Margaret Graves, Bob Beatty, Justin Stoller, Ron Schooler, Gretchen Adams, Kate Logan, Mike Hallwick, and dozens of other contributors who pledge on our Patreon page. We are a listener-supported podcast, and we keep this thing going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you hear and you want to support our work, either the podcast or the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, please head over to thewayofimprovement.com and click support, or go directly to our Patreon page at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com 
backslash the way of improvement. And the best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. You could follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on Twitter. You could follow me at John Fia one on Twitter. And we have a Facebook page. If you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet and consider a positive review on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Podbean, Podchaser, or your favorite podcatcher. Abram Van Engen is Associate Professor of English at Washington University in St. Louis. He is the author or editor of several books, including Sympathetic Puritans, Calvinist Fellow Feeling in Early New England, that was published in 2015 with Oxford University Press. Van Engen is an active participant in the Humanities Digital Workshop at Washington University in St. Louis where he led a team studying the concept and creation of American exceptionalism through a history of the phrase, city on a hill. That work has led to multiple related digital projects, all in teams with undergraduate and graduate researchers. Van Engen's courses at Washington University include literature, spirituality, and religion, early texts and contexts, American literature to 1865, Natives and Newcomers in Early America, City on a Hill, Morality and Markets, which is co-taught with the Business School at Washington U. And he has led seminars for graduate students on Puritanism and the works of Marilyn Robinson. Our interview today is based on his most recent book, City on a Hill, A History of American Exceptionalism, published in 2020 with Yale University Press. Our guest today is Abram Van Engen. He is the author of a brand new book entitled City on a Hill, A History of American Exceptionalism, published this year with Yale University Press. Abram, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. So there have been a lot of books written lately. I mean, yeah. a lot a lot in the scholarly field means, you know, two or three. Right? Yeah. But but within the last, you know, maybe five years or so, maybe there's been there's been a real interest in Winthrop's sermon, a model of Christian charity, and particularly this phrase, city on a hill. Uh, I mentioned in the opening of the podcast that um, we interviewed Daniel Rogers about maybe more than 30 episodes ago. He wrote a, a, a great book on this subject. Uh, your book is a little different. Um, there was, a, I think, I think he said, still at Hillsdale, Hillsdale College uh, professor, history professor Richard Gamble, who I thought wrote a, wrote a good book on this subject. There's a theologian, church historian, I guess, Southern Baptist church historian, who I know named John Wilsey, who wrote a decent book on America, a pretty good book on American exceptionalism for for Christian audiences. You know, you're kind of entering the fray here, right? Why mm-hmm. do you think so many historians are interested in like right, right about now, I guess this, you know, yeah. in this topic. Yeah. I mean, I, what's interesting to me is that all of us, uh, we, we sort of discovered later that we were doing this together at the same time. So n- none of us knew about each other's projects until basically all of our projects were finished. And, and so it does raise the question, well, what started all of us doing this at the same time? You know, one thing that's possible here, and this is just shooting in the dark, but 
I'm sort of curious whether the, the sort of end of the George W. Bush era uh, and the Iraq War and, the, and, the, and this idea of um, the U.S. As a, as a leading nation that's going to bring democracy and other goods to the rest of the world. You know, we saw more broadly in the public its turn, a, a turn against that in the rhetoric of America First, which is more isolationist and so on. Uh, and I wonder if there was a sort of scholarly mood of looking at the sort of the end of American exceptionalism and the last hurrah of it and where did it even come from and how is its language, what's the history of its language, how does City on a Hill figure into this idea of the U.S. sort of spreading its light across the globe, uh, especially in an era that saw increasingly um, critiques of that um, concept of the U.S. Uh, so, so it's possible that there was just a mood in the air that, that had a lot of us hunting for where this rhetoric came from and, and how it might be coming to a close. Yeah, I'm just, again, I'm, the reason I asked the question, and I don't, think, I, don't, I don't think we can kind of have a definitive answer, right? I mean, yeah. you know, but, but, but the reason I asked the question is, you know, as, as someone who teaches historiography, you know, I'm thinking, you know, in, in 20 years, right? You know, someone, some undergrad or something wants to write a paper about this idea and, mm-hmm. you know, you know, the professor's going to push them to say like, why did all these books come, you know, their, their first couple yeah. paragraphs of the paper, right. right? You know, there's this, there's this, you know, it's certainly not to the extent that like, you know, uh, slavery or African-American studies uh, blossomed in like the 1960s right. during the civil rights movement or whatever. But right. but there is this little blip, right, where you guys yeah. are all writing about this. Yeah. And um, do you know if anyone else is working on any projects related to this? I don't. I mean, I I, I, I should. I hope I, I hope that's it. Yeah, maybe <laughs> we've, we've exhausted the moment. I think we've covered right? it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let's yeah. let's talk a little bit. You start the book with, um, you know, a kind of as only a kind of really good literary scholar can do. You you really I think it's three chapters you devote to um, the sermon, a model of Christian charity in its in its you know 17th century context, particularly the context of the of 1630 when it was actually. Um, written or delivered, I don't think we're sure about that, um, mm-hmm. by, uh, by John Winthrop. Um, there's only uh, one manuscript copy of this sermon. It is located in the New York Historical Society in Manhattan. And I love this line because it's just kind of this really quick sentence, but it's, it's packed with you know, all kinds of power. You say there's one manuscript copy, and then to quote you, quote, it cannot be trusted. Um, So why? Why why does the one manuscript sermon we have of this, uh, one manuscript copy Mm -hmm. that we have of this Winthrop sermon, why can't it be trusted? Well, there's a couple of things about it that are immediately uh, red flags. So first of all, it's not in Winthrop's handwriting. Yeah. Uh, not only that, it's it's in two different sets of handwriting. So there's the sermon itself that's written out in one set of handwriting that looks like it's from the 17th century. Uh, and then there's another set of handwriting that, that's the cover page, uh, which is the only evidence we have that locates it, uh, you know, famously on the Arbella in 1630, on the way here as the sort of opening sermon of this Puritan experiment. Uh, but that is in a separate handwriting, pasted on a cover over the sermon itself. So we don't actually know who wrote either of these things. Um, and, and it's clear that that came later. It's written over on top of itself, so there's lines crammed into it. It's also clearly using language that nobody alive in Winthrop's day would have used of Winthrop. 
Um, and so the cover page, which is the only evidence we have to identify the thing, uh, is 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 so untrustworthy that that uh, we don't know what to make of it. The sermon itself is a copy, at best, of something that possibly Winthrop uh, delivered or gave, um, but it's not in Winthrop's own handwriting. And then in that sermon itself, there's all these scriptural citations that get made, but th there's several errors to them. So. Sometimes they, they mean to quote one verse because we can tell from the, the content what verse they meant to quote, but they actually have the wrong verse in there. Or they just say something like First John blank. Uh, so like the whole book of First John or something. Um, and, you know, in the back of Winthrop's journal, he kept a series of uh, verses that seemed to correspond with this sermon. So I actually still think that Winthrop did give this sermon. I think there's enough evidence that he... Uh, wrote this and, and delivered this in some form, uh, and that what we've got is either a listener writing it down, which was not uncommon, uh, or a copy of, of, of that uh, with some misplaced scriptures and, and, and so forth. So it's, it's a corrupted text. And I think you argue, right, that, that you know, Winth Winthrop probably wouldn't have gotten the verses wrong. So this could, this right. is probably a scribal error. Right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's not uncommon to have scribal errors right. uh, as you pass things along or copy them. And I mean, if anybody tries to just sit down and copy something and then looks back at the original, they'll see that they've made errors. I mean, that's very common. Right, right. So the so the key phrase here for your for for American exceptionalism, right, or this idea of America as a kind of light to the world, you know, is. is Again, the title of this sermon is a model of Christian charity, but most of it, no, most people know it if they do know it as the kind of city on a hill, right? So, right. Um, and of course, that's a reference to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in Matthew 5, telling his followers, you know, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hid. Um and I think I think even the most astute, some of the most astute interpreters of this sermon, um, you know, scholars even, you know, kind of have assumed that this is a, this is a sermon about that verse. And, you know, right. the, Puritans, the Puritans were known for sort of building, right, sermons around entire verses. But, you know, you argue that this is actually a sermon on a completely different passage. Um, it's actually a sermon on Galatians 5, 13 through 14. Now, what, what led you to that conclusion? Well, it's very clearly not a sermon on uh, the city on a hill. The city on a hill yeah. line, um, Theodore Dwight Boseman once said, it's a it's a it's a passing line, and certainly not the climax or the point of the sermon. And he was yeah. exactly right. I mean, this is a, this is a line that comes and goes, um, and it, it's near the end. It's used for rhetorical effect, but it's not the point of the sermon at all. Um, and the point of the sermon is really about the way that a community. Uh, is going to try to live for each other and with each other in the light of Christ. Uh, and what's clear from looking at the sermon itself is that uh, among the corruptions that we've got in this manuscript, it seems very clear to me that it's missing its entire beginning because it has all the normal parts of a Puritan sermon, except for the beginning, which would be the scripture. And you don't, you don't just sort of announce a doctrine out of thin air. If you're a Puritan, you don't get to make up your own doctrine. It has to come from scripture. So you've got to start with scripture and, and it's not here. Uh, and so that got me looking for what would be the scripture that makes sense of the various parts of this sermon. And this sermon really has two basic parts. The first part is what do we owe each other? And the second part basically answers that by saying whatever love requires. 
And if you look at Galatians 5, 13, and 14, it's about casting off. It's about starting a community of, of, of um, a new community in Christ. And it basically asks, what do we owe each other? And it answers, whatever love requires. Uh, and so I see this as really a sermon that's unfolding the various parts of Galatians 5, 13, and 14. Yeah, so so this, the... Um... Oh, just a quick question. Uh, now, this is Winthrop, of course, is not a minister, although maybe some of our listeners may not have realized that. You know, he's a yeah. he's a he's a whatever politician, lawyer, um, layperson, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any? Could you make an argument, perhaps, that I don't know that he wasn't trying to follow the form of a Puritan minister because he was not. This was a lay sermon and. You could make that argument. I, I, I think uh, Dan Rogers does try to make that argument. Yeah. What, what doesn't make sense to me about that argument is why he chose to go with the last four parts of a Puritan sermon and not the first two parts. Yeah. Yeah. Because it follows the exact genre of a Puritan sermon in every particular, uh, except for the part that you would start with Scripture. And I just don't see why even a politician would say, oh, the Scripture part's not important. Yeah. We'll, we'll ditch that uh, and move on because I'm not a I'm not a preacher. I mean, uh, any Puritan, you know, when they made their laws, they referred to the Bible incessantly. Any any Puritan would refer first to Scripture to get the message, uh, and I and I think that that would have happened here too. And also, just uh, they called it lay prophesying. A layman giving a sermon was not unusual in Puritan circles, and Winthrop did it later. Uh, we have evidence that he did it later. So it would not be unusual for Winthrop to be giving this as a sermon. Uh, and since it has all the parts of the genre of a Puritan sermon, except that beginning, it just makes sense to me that we've we've lost the beginning. Sure, that makes sense. Um, you know, just sticking with this Galatians uh, 5, 13, 14 for a second, right? This is this is a sermon about loving one another, serving one another. Uh, I'm sorry, passage about loving one another, serving one another, uh, but it also talks a lot about uh, liberty, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You're called to liberty. You're, I'm looking at another translation, a modern translation here in front of me, and I, so I'm not gonna, uh, you know, I'm not gonna quote it um, because they would have used, as you point out, another part of the book we're not going to talk about. But you point about out that this was from the the Geneva Bible, not the King James Bible. Right. Um, I think I'm looking. What am I looking at here? The NIV. <laughs> yeah. You know, but but it does talk about the idea of liberty. Um, you know, and I've heard, you know, as someone who's done a little work in the history of the American Revolution, and even today, right, I hear ministers, some evangelical ministers, perhaps, you know, referencing kind of, you know, America, sort of sort of equating the idea of American liberty, enlightenment liberty, kind of John Locke type liberty right. with um, this passage. Uh but how did the Puritans understand that relationship between liberty and the kind of love, community, serving one another, neighborliness, whatever it is that you're arguing for or your interpretation suggests? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. I think it gets to the heart of this sermon because what, what happens in Galatians 5.13 is it says, you're called to be free. You're called unto liberty. And that sounds great. Uh, it immediately follows up by saying, don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. So exactly what does freedom mean? And for the Puritans, it did not mean choice. 
freedom is not a matter of deciding whatever you want to do, so long as it doesn't harm somebody else. Freedom uh, for the Puritans was a very particular idea about being able to do what is right. So if you are prevented from doing what is right, you are not free. Uh, so if your passions get in the way of doing what would be best for you, you would not be free. And so, uh, so it combines the sense of a, of a, a rightly ordained authority that's going to govern society, set up society in such a way that you will be able to do the right thing. That's right. what freedom means. You will be and, free to kind of, you will be free to obey God in the way he wants you to obey him, because that's the ultimate purpose of life. <laughs> right. So if you imagine, I mean, so one way to imagine this is if you're trying to get to your friend's house and every street is blocked and you can't get there, then you're not free to get there. Yeah. But if somebody removes the obstacles so that you can get there, then you're suddenly free to get to your friend's house. The point is not you don't get to decide what friend you're go going to. That's not freedom. The, the point is being able to get to where you should be going. Yeah. Um, and so their idea of freedom was to remove the obstacles to right worship and rightly ordered living and, and the right kinds of decisions. Uh, that's what freedom meant to them. And that's why a lot of this sermon is about the structure of society being one in which authority is not necessarily over overturned uh, in the name of what they would call licentiousness. Licentiousness is, is what we would call liberty, being able to choose whatever you want to do. Um, but rather a rightly ordained authority that allows you to do what you, what you ought to do. Uh, and what you ought to do here then turns back on itself too, because what you ought to do is love each other well. Uh, and so uh, the bulk of Winthrop's sermon is about how the rich ought to to care for the poor. Um, that's, that's really the bulk of the beginning of the sermon because that's loving them well. Uh, and the rightly ordained authority is going to enable them to give even beyond their own abundance uh, into their essentials so that all of society can be bettered uh, through, through this sort of communal spirit of, of love. So it's a good lesson there for the listeners uh, in kind of historical thinking, right? These words take on different meanings in different contexts. Yes. And, and this is certainly not the kind of liberty you're hearing today about, you know, the liberty not to wear a mask or right. you know, you know, these, no. these kinds of things. Um, no, certainly not. These, these, uh, so this sermon is is often invoked uh, in this, you know, so it's associated, and this is kind of the subtitle of your book, right? Uh, you know, in with this idea of American exceptionalism, right? Uh, you know, city on a hill, a light to the world. America is some exceptional place. Um, mm -hmm. But from what I've heard you say so far, and what you say in this book is that this sermon this sermon doesn't fit very well at all with our kind of modern concept of American exceptionalism. No, it doesn't. <laughs> and so, so I would, you know, you talk about, talk about, for example, uh, you know, it, you know, many, many would have thought that England, right. Was exceptional during yeah. this period. Not, not, you know, talk a little bit about that, you know, how, yeah. how the, how these Puritans understood England, you know, maybe, maybe, counter to say France or, right. you know, another Catholic uh, country that maybe doesn't allow the kinds of, um, right. you know, yeah. uh, religious freedom, if you will, that they, uh, that they yeah. uphold. So, so let me just back up and say the context of that phrase city on a hill in the 17th century was very different than it is now. Yeah. 
Um, so uh, in the 17th century, you know, this is the height of the beginning of the Reformation. There's all these battles and fights as Catholics against Protestants and then all kinds of different kinds of Protestants and so on. And the Catholics really owned that phrase, city on a hill. They loved that phrase. Yeah. Uh, it was the Catholics who cited it again and again and again, because their point was uh, when Jesus said his followers would be a city on a hill, he uh, basically indicated that they would always be known and always be seen. And so the Catholics would say to the Protestants again and again, well, there's only one church since the time of Christ that has been known and been seen and been a city on a hill, and that's ours. So where were you Protestants for 1500 years? And if the city on a hill identifies the true church, then it isn't yours. Uh, <laughs> so the Protestants had to rewrite that phrase and reinterpret what that phrase meant. And what they said was, among, among other things, I mean, I love these quotes that I use a couple of them in the book, but there's lots of them. They come up with all kinds of reasons why a city on a hill can be hidden. <laughs> so they're like, well, mists can come up and clouds can come down and you just don't know where the city on a hill is and <laughs> so on and so forth. Um, so anyway, they say, you know, the, the Protestants were the true church. Uh, they were hidden for 1500 years, but now, now they're shining. Uh, but also what they did was they said, the city on hill is, is a promise. It's not a guarantee. It's what we ought to be, but it isn't necessarily what we are. Um, so wherever the true light of the gospel shines, that becomes a city on a hill. And that's really what we ought to strive for. But it isn't, um, it isn't the sort of guarantee that if you're visible, you suddenly are the true church or something. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And they would have they believed the same thing then about England. Right. And so, uh, you know, England was really for them the, the, the point. I mean, the Puritans were trying to reform the Church of England. And in the uh, opening of the Geneva Bible, uh, some of the early editions of the Geneva Bible, it's quite explicit. They're writing to the Queen and they're saying, you've got this responsibility now to make England the leading nation of the Reformation. Uh, and, and it's your job to make it shine. Uh, with that leading role. And the Puritans took that upon themselves as well. They just didn't like the direction the Church of England went. And so they kept saying, we need to reform it. We need to make it better. We need to make it this, this sort of leading church. I mean, the other thing important here is that it really is about the church. As, as much as it's about any particular kind of nation, the Puritans were very happy to align themselves as a light, as a city on a hill, with any church that they thought was doing the right thing, whether it was in England, whether it was in Germany, wherever it might be. And so they were happy to cite other cities on a hill, other lights elsewhere uh, that they were basically trying to join with in this sort of international re reformation. So this is not something, again, the, the larger point here, right? This is not something, just to reiterate your point in a different way, this is not something that's unique to uh, Massachusetts Bay. or right? Not in the I least. Mean, no. I mean, Geneva, Geneva would have been, Geneva, Switzerland would have been a city on a hill, right? Right. Century, right. 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 Yeah. And they have, uh, I mean, as I point out in the book, they for a while they thought of Colchester in England as a city yeah. on a hill. And, you know, um, Francis Bremer's got this great line about it. He says, you want to understand what this meant to them, it's the difference between ah uh and the. Nobody in their right minds thought that the city on a hill could be located here, there, or anywhere, but all of them felt called to be a city on a hill wherever they happened to be. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Um, so let's talk a little bit then about the, you know, the, the kind of memory of this sermon or the way it's yeah. used. Uh, you you make a really compelling case and you know i, I can't remember the other the other 
books on this subject to what degree they make this case or not. My mind, my, my memory's escaping me, but, but this, this sermon kind of just disappears, right? Af almost disappears after, yeah, after yeah. 1630. Like you, you get this impression from listening to people talk about this sermon that, you know, it was, it was published every year after 1630. Like it's never got out of print, you know, it's been this mm -hmm. mantra, right? Um, but this, this sermon was, was not published. No one really talked about it in the 17th, the rest of the 17th century. Uh, in the 18th century, even the first part of the 19th century, never. Mm -hmm. So a model of Christian charity was never published or printed uh, until 1838. Um, right. First of all, why did, why did it take so long? And then I want to ask you a couple of questions about, you know, the, the context in which it was printed. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. A lot of my book is about origin stories, really, and the function that origin stories play in American rhetoric. Why do we come up with origin stories for the nation? And in particular, why do we come up with colonial origin stories for the United States? And how do those origin stories function? And this is very much uh, an example of a, of a clearly invented foundational story that, that Winthrop delivered this sermon and that it, this sermon has guided us ever since so that we would become a model uh, to other nations. And we know that it's invented because nobody knew about this sermon in its own day. And, you know, Winthrop kept a diary. He never says that he gave this sermon in his diary. Um, and there were tons of biographies written of Winthrop in the 1600s and 1700s, and none of them mentioned this sermon. So it really does disappear, and it reemerges in the Cold War, really, uh, as the great foundation of the United States, the great origin story. And, of course, Ronald Reagan runs with it. Uh, but it's a great example of... First of all, that origin stories are often invented for the rhetorical purposes that we need. And second of all, that we often need origin stories for particular purposes in the present. Yeah. But there, at some point, and I don't mean this negatively, Abram, I, 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 because it was really helpful the way you did. So when I use this phrase, sometimes when you hear this phrase, argument from silence, you know, it's a lot yeah. of fallacy, whatever. But in, but in some ways, like I, as I was reading through the book, I'm thinking like, this is like, at least the parts on the 17th and 18th century, it's a huge argument from silence. Like the silence speaks volumes, right? Yeah. <laughs> that that yeah. no one has ever, you know, that no one cared about it. Uh, yeah. Prior to 18. Now it's reprinted in 1838. And even then, um, if I understand your argument correctly, the first time it's reprinted, the context for that reprinting, it's it's a very regional kind of New England, yes. um, right? New England uh, interest in the sermon in 1838. Mm -hmm. And there's some things here related to sort of race, um, you yeah. know, the Puritan stock genealogy. Maybe you could you could say just a couple words about about the context in which it was reprinted for the first time. Or, or actually, this would have been the first printing, right? In yeah. 1838. Yeah. In 1838. So it's found and it's still housed in the New York Historical Society. But you have to ask yourself, what are the Puritans to New York? And the answer is not much. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and so one of my favorite parts of this book was getting into the history of these historical societies and how they were each trying to cast the United States in their own image. And what mattered to New York was really the Dutch. And they were trying to argue for the Dutch as the origins of the United States. And they kind of lost that argument. Yeah. But in the in the in the uh, course of looking through their own archives, they found this sermon, they sent it to Massachusetts, uh, or they sent a copy of it to Massachusetts, and Massachusetts Historical Society printed it, tried to make a big deal out of it at that moment, and it immediately sort of disappeared again. Nobody nobody yeah. really read it, nobody made a, a big deal out of it. Um, 
What's happening at the same time, though, is really important about genealogy, New England, New England stock, because just as New England is losing out on population and influence, is gaining in its uh, sort of historical memory influence. So a lot of the textbooks, uh, early textbooks of the nation were written by New Englanders who situated New England at the center of the story. Um, and folks like Tocqueville came along and situated New England at the center of the story. And so uh, a regional story about how the Pilgrims and Puritans were the origin of it all becomes a national story right during the time when this sermon is found. Um, and part of that story, and it's very clear what's happening here, is, is uh, an ability or, or a, part of what's happening here is an attempt to make the United States really about a kind of white racial purity. <laughs> yeah. and, and, I, and I, I say that knowing all the implications, but it really is happening. They're trying to sideline Virginia and its whole story of slavery. They're trying to uh, erase slavery from New England as they're writing this story uh, where it did exist. And they're arguing that it's the New England version of pure and noble goals, religious liberty, uh, worshiping God and so forth that spreads across the nation and makes it what it is. Uh, and it only spreads across the nation and makes it what it is because white people spread across the nation and make it what it is. So they call that the Puritan stock. So you have people in Chicago writing the Massachusetts Historical Society desperate to, to locate uh, their Puritan stock to know that they and their own genes are pure and noble and right-hearted and so on and so forth. So it, it's an amazing moment uh, where these narratives are coming together, both racial and uh, a sort of origin story of America. Yeah, that's just that's just fascinating. And then and then the sermon and then the sermon kind of disappears again, as you mentioned. But it really and you already kind of alluded to this briefly. But, but let, let's explore this a little bit more. Um, it's really this sermon really does not enter into kind of the American consciousness, the psyche, if you will. Um, and, and one could even say it doesn't, you know, Perry Miller talks about it, but it's really not until, you know, politicians start using the term that it actually really does saturate, you know, the American psyche. But Miller's you know, interpretation is the first um you know, he brings it into the kind of scholarly mainstream and then it kind of filters down from there. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, who was Perry Miller? Yeah, uh, Perry Miller was a giant at Harvard in, from 1931 to 1961. And he was a, an American literature professor who basically wrote intellectual history. Uh, and he was uh, the guy who made Puritans central to the story of America in the 20th century and basically spawned a whole school uh, of researchers and scholars making uh, the Puritans central to the story of America. So you get books later uh, called, you know, the Puritan origins of the American self and so on. Um, and he had an enormous influence on, on multiple fields, intellectual history especially, but also American literary studies. Uh, and, and a kind of tragic life story where he tried to basically hold all of America together with his particular narrative leading from the Puritans to the present day. And he saw America as a, basically in a giant decline from where it had begun, uh, m basically because of the materialism that came out of World War II. Yeah. Uh, and he ends up with a kind of tragic uh, life story. So I, I, I spend some time telling his story because it's a kind of remarkable story of a scholar. But he's the one who makes this sermon he kind of picks this sermon out and says you know what um 
this sermon has not received the attention it's due. This is the sermon that really begins the idea of America. Uh, and he's the one who, who begins to make it central to the whole story. And you suggest that Miller wants to move, this is an exact quote from the book, he wants to move, quote, America's origins, even within the New England context here, right? He wants to, quote, move America's origins from Plymouth to Boston, unquote. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what did you mean by that? So one of the things that happens is that the Pilgrims and Puritans get blended together in cultural memory as one origin. But in fact, there were different people who came at different time with different ends, different patents, different colonies. Um, and, uh, and the story of the Mayflower had basically always overshadowed the Puritans. So you get the Mayflower story, you get Thanksgiving, you get the, the Pilgrims coming, the, the Mayflower Compact and so on and so forth. There really isn't room for this sermon from 10 years later to be a kind of origin of America. What Perry Miller does is he says that whole business with the Mayflower, that's a red herring. Basically everyone who starts the story of America there, you're starting with a, a, a group of people who just fled because they had nothing, they were poor, they washed up here and they had no purpose. And he said, what America is, is a place where purpose is central. And so we've got to look for where the first statement of purpose really appears. And that's in 1630 when Winthrop arrives with this sermon and establishes the purpose of America, because what America is, is purpose. Uh, and so he basically uh, writes out the Mayflower. He says, ignore that. That's, uh, that's just, a, a, you know, we've been starting the story in the wrong place and you can't get here from there. You've got to start with Winthrop. Uh, and this sermon, um, because that's what defines where we stand today. What is what is the Cold War have to do with all this? I mean, why is it after World War II that, you know, most of Miller's writing and then, you know, City on a Hill becomes useful? Yeah, I think the Cold War really elevates a sense of the nation as needing and having a defined purpose in world history. Uh, now that we have this binary enemy and define ourselves against this binary enemy, we become extra Christian and extra capitalist, <laughs> right, yeah. uh, to, to combat the atheist communist foe. Uh, and there's a lot of work done. I mean, it's not an accident that in 1954 they add under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. Right. Kevin Cruz has a good book on this. Um you know, it's not an accident. And so, um, but it's in the context there where basically Perry Miller is saying, we are one of, if not the most powerful nation in the world. What is the purpose that gives all of this power any sense of meaning? Uh, and in order to give all of that might some meaning, he looks to the Puritans first and begins to sketch an entire narrative of how we got here and what we're supposed to do with all this power that we've gained. Now, our time's just about up here, Abram, but let me just kind of wrap it up with, um, you know, maybe this, maybe this is the, maybe this is the kind of question everyone wanted me to ask first. I don't know, <laughs> but, but um, so the word "city on a hill" in kind of political rhetoric is it is it fair to is it fair to say that Kennedy was the first one to use it? He's the first president to first use it. First president to use it, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, but it, it kind of gets, I start this episode off, you didn't hear the intro to this episode, but I started off by talking about, actually, I'm hearing Joe Biden, right? Use the phrase mm-hmm. now a little bit, um, you know, use it during the campaign, but it was really Susan, Ronald Reagan. Susan Rice is now using it. Susan so Rice, that's right. Yeah. Uh, it was really Reagan, you know, who I, I believe Rogers points out at, in his book, added the word shining to the, yes. to the phrase, right? Yes. <laughs> shining city on a hill. But, um, you know, 
to what extent, and this maybe comes full circle to why so many people are writing about this today, um, you know, but to, to what extent, and, and maybe, you know, the scholar Sakvan Berkovich, who you write about, you know, is involved in this, to what extent does, does a city on a hill or even New England generally, and this, you know, coming from a colonial American historian who writes about, you know, the middle colonies and always trying to say, you know, the middle colonies are more representative of America than New England, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but, but what is Berkovich's, you know, so who is Sakvan Berkovich how, and how did he sort of promote this idea, which you see in Kennedy and Reagan and Biden and, you know, other, other politicians that, America is this kind of New England writ large, right? You've talked about this yeah. before in the 19th century, but it's it's much more prominent in the post-World War II era. Yeah. Sackman Bergerich is really interesting because um, I think that he got things incredibly right and incredibly wrong at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and so what I think that he did really well was he diagnosed a certain strain of American rhetoric that basically identifies what is right with America and what is wrong with being un-American. <laughs> so yeah. if we like it, we call it American. If we don't like it, we call it un-American, regardless of whether Americans do it or not. Uh, and so do, just to give you a sense of, and this is what he calls the American Jeremiah, but, uh, and, and that's part of it anyway. But, and Berkovich, Berkovich real quick, is a liter, uh, English literary scholar. Right. Yeah. He's sort of considered the heir of Perry Miller. And He's writes the book. What is yeah. the book? The Origins of? Uh, the Puritan Origins of the American Self, Self. is one. And then yeah. his more, just his famous book is called The American Jeremiah. American Jeremiah, right. Yeah. Both written in the 70s, right during the rise of Reagan. And so actually they play off of each other in a way. Right. Because basically what, what, what Bergovich is actually doing in the 70s is reading Reagan and, and, and casting it back on the Puritans. <laughs> is that so, right? Is he, is, so he is actually, um, you know, so he's actually, this was not just by chance, like there was a connection. I mean, Bergovich was reading him in the 70s while he's, what, governor of California or, yeah, I mean, I or mean, that conservative you know, icon, right, doing these right. commercials for Westinghouse or whatever it was he was, yeah. And I believe it was 1976, you have to correct me if I'm wrong, but he, that Reagan gives the CPAC speech that really right. launches his national career. Um, but, you know, uh, it's at the same moment that that Berkovich is writing and what, what Berkovich has seen in Reagan's rhetoric is this lofty sense of America as the redeemer nation with this sort of millennial goal of, of bringing the light to all the nations of the world uh, and being providentially blessed and set apart to do that. And what he's doing is basically saying all of this rhetoric comes out of the Puritans. Now, I think that he was doing a very good job of reading a certain strain of political rhetoric that still exists today. What I don't think he did well was actually read what the Puritans were saying themselves and what the Puritans actually thought of themselves. So he, he creates a kind of lineage that didn't actually exist, but, but it makes sense where he gets that lineage because that lineage had been developing through other scholars for a long time. Yeah. So the, so the takeaway here is, you know, give, give us a, give us a, you know, a, really brief kind of takeaway you're you're sort of an ordinary person kind of hearing this phrase city upon a hill you know yeah uh wh what should you what should you think about that you know in light of your scholarship like what should you what should your where should your mind go when you hear that phrase i mean the easiest way to think about it and really what got me started on the project was the question of how a nation takes over the language of a church and what that means about the nation and that's really what happened the nation i mean we, I have this huge database we found, you know, 
uh, thousands of citations of City on a Hill in the 1800s, and they all refer to the church. Um, and by the 1950s and by the 1960s and 70s and 80s, suddenly that phrase predominantly refers to the United States of America. So really you can watch as the nation takes over the language of a church. And you have to ask yourself, what is it about a nation that enables it to take over that rhetoric? Uh, and one of the things that enables it to happen is a certain kind of narrative about itself as sort of God-blessed, specially set apart, uh, and with roots and certain kinds of origin stories that give it this millennial role. Uh, and so I, I was sort of curious, the book is about how that develops, um, how, that, how those narratives develop and what are the consequences of those narratives and how they can all be read through this one phrase, City on a Hill, and especially the way that it comes from a sermon, which was in its own day completely ignored. This is amazing because you're, you're basically describing, right? You know, and it's no coincidence that this happens in the 70s too, late 70s. You're basically subscribing, you know, this is like a, your book is kind of the prelude to the, to the next book someone needs to write, which, which has been written already on the, on the rise of the Christian right. And, you know, yeah. and the way the nation co-ops the church, especially within American evangelicalism. Uh, but, but I don't see a lot of, um, you know, I don't see a lot of sort of historians writing about the rise of the Christian right, kind of taking this deeper, this deeper dive. But in some mm -hmm. ways, that's literally what's happened. Deeper dive into history, I mean. But mm -hmm. that's literally what's happening here, right? The nation co-ops co-ops the church. Now we could argue that the nation, you know, if you read people like Mark Knoll and others, you could say the nation has been co-opting the church uh, kind of for a long time. But in terms of this phrase. Right. Uh, it's just fascinating. Yeah. So we're talking today with Abram, or we talked today with Abram Van Engen. Again, the book is City on a Hill, a History of American Exceptionalism. Yale University Press came out in 2020. Uh, Abram, thanks so much for taking some time to talk with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great. Have a great day. Thank you. enjoyed that interview with Abram Van Engen, uh, just a really um, bright, young, I don't want to even say up and coming anymore, because he's written some great stuff. One of our leading scholars of early American religious literature. Uh, this book, you know, I think it's the best of the books on the city on a hill. We, we were talking a little bit about all the books that were written. Um, I'm probably biased because I really like close readings of texts, but also I think he, you know, traces this story in a way that the other two or three authors are not interested in. All three of the other books by Gamble and Rogers and Wilsey are also well worth your time. And that's why I suggested that you listen to this podcast alongside of episode 45, where we talked to Daniel Rogers. And you listen to these two podcasts together, you'll become an instant expert, maybe not an expert, because you probably need to read the books, but a well-versed thinker on the idea of the city upon a hill, because it's really not, it's the, the way that the way the term is used 
uh, or was used in the 17th century, really has nothing to do with the way uh, we use it today. And Van Engen unpacks uh, some of that, some of that history. You know, a lot of it is a post-World War II story. Uh, and I love the way at the end how he kind of connects this to the church, the relationship between church and state, right? I mean, this is really a story about how the church's use of this phrase is co-opted by the nation. So again, a major contribution here on that front. So again, I hope you have been uh, enjoying these episodes. We have been dropping episodes every week now for the last couple of months. We're going to keep going you know, every week now for the next several weeks. So we're hoping you're enjoying these episodes. Uh, we're doing this today on Giving Tuesday, December 1st, Giving Tuesday, the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. You know, you may, I don't know when you're going to listen to this, but you know, we're really, we're really trying to, um, you know, get some good content out there. I think our, our democracy needs to think more deeply about the past. If you want to help us out, you want to help us to uh, continue to push out these episodes, you know, feel free to head over to the Patreon page. You know, even the smallest contributions can help. And thanks for those of you who have already uh, pledged. Uh, thank you for your support as always. So uh, I hope you enjoyed again. Hope you enjoyed today's episodes. And until we meet again, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at TWOILH Podcast. The podcast was recorded to you via Zoom. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guests. Our studio producer is me, Casey Lehman. And your host, as always, is John Fia. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom, and a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.